Welcome back to this BJSM podcast. My name is Brooke Patterson. I'm an Australian-based physiotherapist and researcher at La Trobe University in Melbourne. Now, this is part two of an ACL myth-busting series with Associate Professor Jackie Whitaker and Dr. Stephanie Philbay. We covered off on seven common misconceptions uh, in regard to ACL injury management and osteoarthritis risk last week, and we have five to go today. Uh, We're also going to include some tips for clinicians about how they can integrate new evidence into their daily practice when it may even challenge some of those long-standing beliefs and practices. Our first statement for today, and remember Jackie and Steph um, are going to buzz in true or false. ACL tears can heal. Yes, true. (laughs) Yeah, we we actually um, recently published a study in BJSM looking at this. But I would say first we should clarify, I guess, what we mean by healing. Um, if what we mean is can a fully ruptured ACL regain continuity, the continuous ACL fibres as seen on MRI, the answer is yes. So our, our recent study in BJSM, which looked at data from the Canoon trial, found that at least one in three people who were randomised to treatment with initial rehabilitation and optional surgery had a healed ACL on two-year MRI. But that was actually assuming people who had delayed surgery had a non-healed ACL. In the subgroup specifically who were managed with rehab only at two years, 53% had a healed ACL on MRI and 56% had a healed ACL at five years follow-up. Interestingly, we actually found that healing on MRI was associated with better patient-reported outcomes compared to no healing on MRI, but also compared to people who were randomised to early ACL reconstruction and those who decided to have delayed surgery. Very interesting, Steph. So what you're kind of indicating without saying it is potentially it's one of those factors that might you know, help people cope and, and recover. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, right, because we've known for quite some time that a proportion of people do really well with rehabilitation. And we've had, you know, pretty poor, been pretty poor at trying to predict who those people are, who will need surgery and who will do really well. Um, but this could be a bit of an important missing piece of the puzzle um, that we haven't really thought to look at. But possibly those people that are doing well, a lot of them may actually have a degree of healing of the ACL and that could be why they're doing quite well after rehabilitation. We don't yet know, but yeah, I think it's a really interesting um, area for future research. Thanks, Steph. And we might have to get you back on for a bit of a Q&A on this topic, I think, at can some I, point. Can I ask a quick question, though, related to that, Steph? So, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you've said, but um, I, I think I think for a lot of people listening, this might be the first time they hear this, right? And um, I mean, I know that you spent time looking at this and, and looking at previous reports. This 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 idea of the ACL regaining its continuity is is not it's not new, right? It has been reported before, but I think that the the paper that you're talking about, particularly the RCT that you guys have just published, is a it's a really you know rigorous um, look at this, and I, I think it's really brought this all back into light. But I think for a lot of our listeners, potentially the younger ones, this is the first time they've heard of this. But this is something we know that that does happen, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting when I speak to multidisciplinary clini- clinicians, yeah. especially physios. They say, in my undergraduate degree, and then this may only be five years ago, almost everyone I've spoken to was educated that 
and so was I, ACL ruptures can't heal because they're intracapsular, the ends get bathed in synovial fluid, and this is one of the main reasons why people undergo ACL reconstruction. And that was relatively recently. But you're right, there is some evidence. Um, they tend to be smaller studies. Most of the studies include a degree of partial ACL tears, which really we want to look at full ruptures because it's not surprising that partial tears can heal. Um, I think what was unique about the Canoon trial and looking at this in that group was firstly the multiple MRI images that we have over time and up to five years, soon to be um, X-rays up to up to 11 years, but also the fact that the patients weren't aware of their healing status. It's not something they were told. So it means the patient reported outcomes. In a way, they were blinded to what the MRI was saying about ACL healing. So it didn't influence their perception of their knee function, their quality of life, their return to sport and activities. So I think that's something that's quite nice about this this study. Yeah, excellent. Okay, along similar lines, we're up to number nine of 12 statements. I think it's pretty easy. Um, ACL tears only heal if patients are braced immediately. False. <laughs> I'm I, I just answer this, but, yeah, as per our findings, again, in the Canoon trial, it does appear that a number of people with ACL rupture who are managed with rehabilitation alone may experience healing of a ruptured ACL. I think... Um, perhaps a more pertinent question is, is an ACL rupture more likely to heal if braced immediately? And we're actually evaluating a novel bracing protocol that braces the knee initially for four weeks in 90 degrees of flexion um, for 24 hours a day, so the cross-bracing protocol. And the rationale for this was that at 90 degrees and greater of flexion, the ruptured ends of the ACL are in closer proximity. And so by holding them in that closer proximity position, it may be able to facilitate ACL healing. So uh, preliminary findings are, are really promising. So the first 80 patients with ACL rupture managed with this protocol, 90% had a continuous ACL on three-month MRI, and that's using that same criteria as we used in the Canoon trial. Um, the study is under review at the moment, so it will be published soon, we hope. Um, but we are actually planning a clinical trial to compare rates of healing following management with rehab alone compared to management with the cross-bracing protocol plus rehabilitation. So hopefully this will address some of these knowledge gaps in this area. Thanks, Steph, and uh, watch this space on that one by the sounds of it. Number 10, open chain knee extension exercises are safe to perform in the first four weeks after ACL reconstruction. True, absolutely 100% true. Um, there is evidence that open chain knee extension exercises are safe and not only safe within that first four weeks, but absolutely 100% necessary and that they are necessary because closed kinetic chain exercises alone do not result in the same level of activation of the quadricep muscles. Um, so I know when I went through school, physio school, I was told you should never do open kinetic chain exercises with people that had torn their ACL or had it reconstructed because there would be some horrible amount of strain that would be put on the graft. But that was really based on on, on old studies with, with poor design. Um, and um, it, it's very clear now and various groups have, have measured this that the strain on the on the graft is less with an open chain kinetic exercise than it is when people are walking. Um, and there's there's lots of evidence to suggest that you get a different activation 
profile with open kinetic chain exercises versus closed kinetic chain exercises. So I, I would really stress that, that that not only are they safe, they are absolutely necessary. Um, and people should have no concerns whatsoever about using them early on in the rehab, uh, rehab phase. Um, and there's a really great article, and I won't say the name of the journal because it's, it's not BGSM, but for clinicians that are out there, there is a really great article. Oh, I'm trying to, it's just a, a quick little sort of viewpoint, and it's called Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf? Open Chain Exercises After ACL Reconstruction. Um, uh, something to look up and read if you want a quick little overview on, on, on the evidence. Thank you, Jackie. And yeah, we're unlearning a few things from uni days today. Um, we've got two more statements. So number 11, returning to high impact sports increases the risk of post-traumatic OA after ACL injury. I'm actually going to say true for this one. And I'm not sure if Jackie agrees with me or not, but um, my reasoning for this is actually and if I refer to, sorry, ACL reconstruction, because we don't have the evidence for those managed with rehab only, um, there's systematic review evidence, at least four systematic reviews, showing that people who return to high-risk sports, so that's sports including a high degree of cutting, pivoting, or as well being contact sports, after an ACL reconstruction, have an increased risk of ACL graft rupture and revision surgery. There's then strong evidence to show that those who undergo revision surgery have a high risk of knee osteoarthritis. So I'd say through that risk alone, so by elevating the risk of subsequent and re-injury and then developing osteoarthritis that there is, um, we do know that people who pass return to sport testing actually have a lower rate of ACL graft re-rupture compared to those who don't. Um, so it suggests that we may actually be able to help people reduce this risk of re-injury and subsequent OA if they do decide to return to sport after reconstruction. But I also want to point out when, when looking at the evidence just around return to sports and risk of OA, I think it is more complex and we need to look at who the comparison group is because as we talked earlier about the relationship between BMI and OA and lacking, we don't have a lot of research in that area, but we know that physical inactivity can cause increases in adiposity and it's possible um, from OA idiopathic OA research that increases in adiposity may put someone at risk of OA development. Again, we need more research in that area. But what I'm saying, I guess, if the comparison is <laughs> return to high impact sports versus physical inactivity, it may not actually be an increased risk. And in reality, there may be a happy medium. I think we know you need to maintain an active lifestyle, but um, potentially modifying activities with a slightly lower risk of re-injury may be beneficial for people. I, yeah. I think, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I agree with Steph. I think the, the kind of approach he took, Steph, was, you know, these are the possible mechanisms by which returning to, you know, a high-risk sport might result in more osteoarthritis down the road. And, and I agree. I think that the, the mechanistic sort of approach that you just took, I think, Theoretically, it, it makes sense that, yes, it may increase the risk. But I will say, and it, it comes back to exactly what you were saying, when we did the systematic review looking at whether or not returning to a pivoting sport after a traumatic knee injury increases the odds of either structural or symptomatic osteoarthritis, we actually only included one study um, with uh, a 15-year follow-up of 210 participants. And because there was really only one study that looked at it, 
we said that it was unclear as to what that relationship is. And I think it just speaks again to the challenge in designing that. And that was for symptomatic osteoarthritis. We didn't find anything for structural osteoarthritis. So it's challenging. And I think the other piece that makes this challenging is that often the people that do return to pivoting sport and stay in pivoting sport are the survivors or the people that are coping really, really, really well. And so there is this natural selection bias that exists in the data, which it make which makes it really challenging to answer that question. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just so important to for maintaining long-term joint health is pres- pre- preserving joint health by preventing additional injuries, especially rupture of the ACL graft. I think once you rupture an ACL graft, your prognosis is pretty poor. And if you have revision surgery and re-rupture that, it's even poorer. So I guess really protecting an ACL graft, but also protecting the meniscus. Um, so, yeah, I don't think, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that joint loading increases OA risk. Um, I don't think there's evidence to show that. So it's not, you know, loading through sport participation that I, that I think would be related. I think it's just protecting the knee from further incidences of injury. Mm. And probably a, a bonus one again that I haven't got here, but something that patients get told a lot is running is bad for their knees. So they might go back to running instead of sport after their ACL reconstruction. What would you say to that? <laughs> I, I would. Well, I, I mean, I'm gonna. I would probably just say false. But what I would say is that it, it's complicated and it depends because I think that people have to have the capacity to go back to do whatever activity it is. I don't think that running should be ruled out in something you should never be able to do again. And I would also maybe venture as far as saying you should never go back to pivoting sports is something you should never do again. But you need to, you know, in a way, pass a return to sport or return to running protocol. And you have to have the capacity to do that and build it up over time. Um, but we don't have any su- evidence to suggest that if you return to running, your, your risk for osteoarthritis is going to go up. But I would say we just don't have the evidence. So it's difficult to answer the question definitively. I don't know, Steph, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I agree, especially recreational running. I don't think there's any, any evidence to suggest an increased risk of OA. I believe there's a tra- uh, testing my um, knowledge now, but I believe there is a systematic review that shows possibly an increase in radiographic OA, structural changes in like ultra marathon runners, people who run extreme amounts. But again, what we're seeing on X-ray and structure isn't necessarily related to symptoms. So the relevance and clinical relevance of that is is really unclear. Um, But no, there's no evidence to suggest that running or recreational running or jogging increases your risk of OA. No. Great. All right. Final question. Having an early ACL reconstruction will reduce the risk of future structural OA. So I'm going to go with false. Um, and I think this actually, I think Steph actually sort of answered this in response to um, the answer to the first question. Um, there's certainly no evidence to suggest that. Um, there's lots of, I think, um, rationale for why prolonging the inflammatory response by having uh, an immediate ACLR could actually lead to more osteoarthritis. When we summarized the data for the the systematic review, uh, for the Optini risk factor systematic review, we included four studies with uh, nine, with with follow-up that spanned nine to 37 years of approximately 66,000 participants who had an early ACLR compared to no ACLR. 
And we saw that the early ACLR increased the risk of symptomatic OA by about one and a half times, but that was compared to no ACLR. Um, so that may be more related to the injury than anything else. And then when we looked at the difference between those had an, had an early versus a delayed Using the parameters of RSR, we were unable, we, we said that the evidence was unclear, but I, I do believe that there's emerging um, SRs and, and other studies out there that are showing actually um, that the scales are tipping and that an early ACLR might actually lead to a higher odds or a higher risk of osteoarthritis for some of the reasons that, that Steph pointed out. Um, I think that that is a big part of why in the Optini consensus, we have uh, recommended that the first line of treatment for an ACL tear is education and resistance-based exercise therapy. Um, that's not to say that some participants or some patients may not go on to um, have an ACL reconstruction. But really, that decision should be made after the knee is quieted down, that inflammatory response is gone, and they've completed sufficient rehab to, to try to re return to a, a functional level that's, that's important for them. Um, if they're able to do that without an ACL reconstruction, that's great. If they're not, and they feel for you know whatever reason, um, after consulting with a, a variety of different people that are important to them and making that decision that they need to proceed with an ACLR, then perhaps a, a, a delayed ACLR makes sense. But really, it should be based on them not being able to get back to the functional level that, that, that they want. Thanks, Jackie. And yeah, 100% comes back to that misconception that Steph talked about earlier, that the ACL deficient are at a higher risk of future meniscal tears, which Steph did a brilliant job of um, explaining the evidence there. Um, Okay, that brings us to the end of our rapid fire round. I do have one more bonus question. Respect to, I think, clinicians who, you know, might hear some of these things that might be surprising or it might be surprising to the surgeons that they work with, particularly, say, the open chain knee extension where they have may have it in their protocols, do not do this. Like, what's your advice to clinicians who might want to, yeah, if they're really struggling to get their quads going and they want to use some open chain, like how to have that conversation? Yeah, it's 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 challenging, and I know I've had this conversation with some of the the students in our physio physiotherapy program, and they've gone out on placement, and the therapist that they're paired up with has really got this belief system around not using open chain um, exercises. And I mean, I think you you have to. I think I think it's really important to put yourself in someone else's shoes and understand that that is a belief that that they were taught and that they have practiced with for many years. And, and I think it, it, there's ways that you can try to challenge that very, you know, gently and respectively by presenting, you know, that clinical commentary or that viewpoint that I pointed out um, or presenting some of the evidence. And and it's, it's, it's not it doesn't have to be presented in a in a, a very in your face sort of way. I think you can start a dialogue and have that conversation. I think the dialogue can potentially be a little bit more challenging if you're talking to a surgeon who's really got this belief that there's something that's going to harm the graft. But again, I, I think the only way you can really start to have the conversation is by presenting the evidence, but you need to do so in a very respectful way, in a way that opens up a dialogue where you can have some conversation back and forth. Um, I don't know, Steph, if you've got any ideas, but that's that's basically how I've, you know, whenever we approach these situations with students where they go out on placement and they're sort of running into the old evidence and they're having to, you know, try to figure out, well, what do I do knowing the new evidence? How do I approach that situation? And I really think it comes down to communication skills. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with Jackie. I think it's important to note, um, so we're developing a, a patient decision aid at the moment to assist clinicians, physios uh, and patients to make an informed decision about ACL injury management options based on the pros and cons and based on the evidence. I think the evidence, it's as you've seen today, it is really complex and it isn't just a matter of picking out one study and, and trusting what it is that that one study is saying. Um, so I think that filters down to some difficulty, probably for physios as well, in interpreting the evidence and then passing that on to patients. As part of um, the development of this decision aid, we've performed an Australian-wide survey to assess current practice in Australia. Interestingly, over 90% of patients that we assessed were told by a surgeon that surgery is the best option for them and that surgery is needed if they want to return to sport which we've discussed today, actually the evidence it doesn't show. But it isn't just surgeons. It's also a large proportion of physios who are passing that knowledge on to patients. Um, and it isn't necessarily deceptive. It's beliefs that has existed for a long time and that people have likely um, established through their own clinical experience and through what they were taught at uni. So we do need a big shift in practice when it comes to this. And hopefully resources like a patient decision aid can help filter through some of this evidence and pass that on to uh, patients and the general public. I think that's a really great point. Um, you know, I, I, and I also think that, you know, as a clinician, um, it's so hard because our, our beliefs get reinforced by what we see in the clinic every day, but we only see in the clinic what we see every day. We don't see the things we don't see in the clinic because those people are, are doing well. They're not in our offices. And so it's really easy to develop over many years of clinical practice a belief system that doesn't include the people that you're not seeing, which are the mm. people that are doing very well. And, and that's the really challenging, I think, for I know myself as a clinician and I think for many others is to is to understand that there is a whole swack of people out there that might actually be a much larger group of people that I'm just not interacting with. Um, and yeah, but but I but I agree. I think you know as we start to see the emergence of whether it be patient uh, decision support tools or um, clinician practice support tools in this area, um, hopefully we'll, we'll be able to start to see a shift. And and also, I mean, we need more research. Um, we need to confirm some of those things. Um, like Steph said, a lot of what we said today, I think we know a little bit more definitively, but there's other stuff we still need more information on. Um, I just think it's not as black and white as we've always thought it was. And I think that's probably the main message for people to take away. Um, you know, um, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And if we think about even, even surgeons, the people that they likely see, so think about who who presents to a surgeon after having rehabilitation. Absolutely. It's the proportion of people who have had Absolutely. difficulties with their knee or have had episodes of instability. So it is a very, I guess, a biased sample that that they see. Yeah. Um, I do think physios need to be more trained, uh, more educated in this area, and advocates for patients. Um, and hopefully, yeah, we that's the way that, that's the way forward. Um, is passing on the evidence and heavily training physios so they can be, you know, confident in when to refer on to a surgeon, in how to present different ACL injury management options, on when someone is a really good candidate for surgery. Yeah, I mean, I might be a bit biased being a physio myself, but I, I think physios have a big role to play here. 
And it's tricky because, you know, we talk about ACLs a lot, but they're actually relatively rare. So if you're a clinician in a, a, a private practice, you might not actually see them come through your door that regularly. So, you, yeah, you're getting, yeah, potentially a bias sample from a very small sample size as well. And um, I think that's a really great kind of spot to finish um, the podcast. And maybe we've come up with the title that it's complicated for the podcast, <laughs> um, but it's been so interesting and enjoyable to hear you um, talk about the evidence, bring it all together, um, bust a few of these myths and yeah, really highlight, I guess, some of the limitations of the evidence that we have. So um, I would just like to finish off by um, thanking you for tuning in. Um, we hope you enjoyed it. Um, and if you're looking to know more about Jackie and Steph's work, um, you can check out their um, recent podcasts and also the um, BJSM blogs on the Optinee reviews and consensus. Um, it'll all be in the show notes. If you have an idea for a BJSM podcast or a similar kind of myth-busting style, um, I'd love to hear from you. Um, and we hope you have a physically active day. 